Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on Friday, December 27, 2019. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the podcast. This evening, we're talking with David Daly, senior fellow in an organization known as Fair Vote. You may recall last time around that we talked with Elizabeth Melson, president and founding board member of the Virginia chapter of Fair Vote. But this evening, we're going up the ladder a bit, as it were, to the national level of Fair Vote. Fair Vote is a nationwide nonpartisan champion of electoral reforms, and they believe in giving voters greater choice, a stronger voice, and a representative democracy that works for all Americans. You may find more information on Fair Vote at www.fairvote.org. That's all one word, F-A-I-R-V-O-T-E, www.fairvote.org. David Daly is a senior fellow for Fair Vote, and he is also author of a book entitled Rat Eft, Why Your Vote Doesn't Count. David is a frequent lecturer and media source about gerrymandering. He is the former editor-in-chief of Salon.com and a former CEO and publisher of the Connecticut News Project. He's a digital media fellow at the Wilson Center for the Humanities and the Grady School of Journalism at the University of Georgia. And his work has appeared in New York Magazine, The Atlantic, The Boston Globe, New Yorker, The Washington Post, USA Today, Rolling Stone, Details, and he's been on CNN and NPR. David earned a bachelor's degree in political science at Boston College and a master's degree in journalism at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. When writing for the Hartford Courant, He helped identify Mark Felt as the deep throat source for Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. David, welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark. Thanks for having me on, Dan. It's uh, this being the middle of the holiday season. We are especially grateful that you've taken the time to join us for this chat today. Happy to. Thanks for So, David, you're uh, a fellow at the Fair Vote uh, organization. I'd like to ask you, um, just right off the bat here, we've had the elections in 2018, and now we're almost done with 2019. So could you kind of enumerate for us what the, some of the most significant successes with uh, fair vote were, uh, ranked choice voting and, and other methods of fair voting in, uh, in this past year? Sure, I'd love to. Um, I think that 2019 was really just an amazing year for ranked choice voting, which is the main reform that a fair vote works on. Um, I think in a lot of ways, 2019 has been this incredibly powerful year for structural electoral reform around the nation. There's just so much momentum amongst, you know, regular people, regular voters, really understanding the importance of reforms like this. Um, What we saw in the last year was New York City in November passing ranked choice voting uh, for their city elections, and that's going to triple the number of voters around the country who use the ranked choice voting. We saw five states, um, Alaska, Hawaii, Kansas, Wyoming, and Nevada, decide that they're going to use ranked choice voting in their Democratic primaries and caucuses in 2020s for some of the early voting or for all of their voting in those states. You had Alaska and Massachusetts launching these powerful citizen-led ballot initiatives to put ranked choice voting um, before every voter in the state uh, there in 2020. If they can pull off those wins next year, you'll have 21 million people around the country using ranked choice voting as we head into 2021. 
Uh, so there is just this dynamic energy and momentum around uh, this issue. It's a really exciting time. Well, what do you feel is the um, the main reason for this momentum building up? Is it um, obviously fair vote has something to do with it, but is it uh, building uh, coalitions at the local level and, and scaling up from there, or what, what methods do you see as most responsible? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think if you if you look at how all of these reforms are taking place, most of them are bubbling up from the people. This is a you know this is a bottom up initiative um, that has been led by citizens in in New York, in Maine, in Utah, um, Alaska, Massachusetts, uh, San Francisco, who have decided to put this reform on the ballot um, and to fix their own elections. And I think what you see is that ranked choice voting really takes off when voters understand that political uh, polarization is the number one problem in our country. And they start to look for ways to sort of solve the root problem at the core of this kind of you know crisis of a democracy that we are are having. And they hit on RCD um, because they understand that it's the best fix for the root problem. Um, that RCD is the way to make politicians compromise again. It incentivizes a different kind of election, one that's you know, much more about consensus and moderation, and it encourages a real diversity of voices and ensures that every voice is heard. Um, and if you want to fix a democracy, if you want to really repair the heart of the nation and, and find ways to talk to one another again, right? We just made it through the holiday season and yet another round of newspaper stories about how to argue with your parents and how to, you know, win Christmas from your drunk uncle and your, you know, radical cousin. We have to stop writing articles like that and start finding ways to talk to one another again. And that's what ranked choice voting does so well. Well, what is it about ranked choice voting? Is it is is it because the um, I mean, there's a habit now with all politicians to you know just sort of speak to their base because they, for some reason, believe that you know they only have to appeal to their base. We we see that you know, example after example all the way up to the presidency on this. So ranked choice voting, by its nature, uh, forces them to branch out from their base. It does. I mean, ranked choice voting means that you need to have a majority in any election to actually win that election. So when you have these single-member districts and these winner-take-all elections, and say there's four or five candidates in that race, you can win an election with 21, 20% of the vote. And we see that happening around the country. Uh, And when... A politician knows that all it takes to win is 21% of the vote. They can campaign differently. They don't have to talk to everybody. They can go out and simply look for their most motivated extreme voters, and you can get them angry and turn them out. Um, When you have to appeal to everybody, when you have to find a way to get to 50% plus one, 
it's a completely different campaign strategy. You have to go out and actually talk to all voters. If you are not their first choice, you have to find a way to be their second choice. You end up seeing a much more civil and constructive campaigns. You see candidates uh, crossing the aisle and working together and campaigning for those second choice votes. Um, and then once a politician is in office, they're able to behave differently. I mean, right now, when you send a politician um, from one of these, you know, single-member winner-take-all districts to Washington, the only election that they really fear, right, is a primary challenge. Um, and primaries are often held over the summer in their low-turnout elections. Um, and you can radicalize a small base. And that is what those politicians fear losing. They know they're safe in the general election. Uh, so when they go to Washington, they don't feel like they have any reason to compromise. A compromise is the one thing that, that is going to earn you a primary challenge from you know somebody to your far left or far right. Um, so mm-hmm. a ranked choice voting doesn't just change the nature of our elections. It incentivizes our politicians to behave differently once they're in office. Very good. Yeah, we talked last week, we talked with uh, Elizabeth Melson. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she's the president of the um, Virginia chapter. And we went over some of the details of what ranked choice voting is. And yeah, it's it's uh, it not only forces the politicians to um, speak to everybody because they need everybody's vote, but it also allows individual voters to feel like they are not throwing away their vote when they want to take a chance on someone they think is new but is not one of the main two parties. So you can always vote your first choice as the new person that you want to take a chance on, but you know you can always fall back and make your second or third choice to one of the main parties. That uh, that helps the voter as well, I believe. That's exactly right. I mean, it gets mm-hmm. rid of this idea of spoilers and wasted votes. And it stops voters from having to make this, you know, a crazy calculus in their mind as far as if I vote for the person I really want, am I actually helping the candidate? I like the least ranked choice voting allows us to get all of that out of our politics. Right. We can actually vote for people instead of against them. What a great idea. So there's um, uh, ranked choice voting um, obviously gets a a lot of traction in the press, but there's other things that go on in in the uh, fair vote dot organization or the fair vote organization correct there is this thing called fair representation act could you walk us through this uh, all the aspects of fair representation and address how what problems it resolves sure um the, the fair representation act is really the very best way to end gerrymandering um if we want to again attack the root problem um of our politics this this intense polarization that our system just isn't built to endure. And if we want to really end the gridlock that infects Washington and and make sure that every vote counts, we have to really fundamentally think about changing the way we elect politicians. And we talked a little bit before about, you know, single member winner takes all and why it can be so damaging to our politics and how it sort of incentivizes all of this bad behavior. What the Fair Representation Act does is fundamentally change the way that we elect the members of Congress. And there's really three main parts. Um, You use an independent commission 
to draw districts, but the districts that commission draws are, are bigger. They're larger districts that are represented by several members of Congress, um, and then voters elect those, those members using ranked choice voting. The results of this would just completely transform our politics, and it would eliminate so many of the things that Americans find so frustrating about Washington, the gridlock, the extremism, the partisan polarization, just the general brokenness of our politics. Um, imagine if every district in the country is suddenly a swing district. Imagine if voters don't feel locked into elections in which the outcome is automatically predetermined. Um, imagine if women and candidates of color actually saw a real path to victory in every part of the country. Um, imagine if Democrats, Republicans, and independents could be elected from every district in the country. That's what the Fair Representation Act really promises. Um, because in every state, there are Democrats, Republicans, and independents. Um, Single-member winner-takes-all districts, however, lock in uh, congressional delegations that are wildly unrepresentative of the actual political views of the people in the state. Mm -hmm. I live in Massachusetts, uh, for example. There are plenty of Republicans in Massachusetts. Uh, the state has a Republican governor right now who is extraordinarily popular. But using single-member winner-takes-all districts the state is represented by nine Democrats and zero Republicans in Congress. Massachusetts has not elected a Republican to Congress in more than 25 years. Wow. Um, so if you are a Republican in any, <clears throat> in any of those districts, you already know who is going to represent you. It's going to be the Democrat. That 35 or 40 percent of the state is just has completely no voice and no chance under the current system of changing that. You have the same problem if you're a Democrat in Oklahoma or in Kansas. Um, it's really, really hard to elect a member of your own choosing. Um, and if you're an independent across the country, we also know how hard it right. can be. Um, so what the Fair Representation Act promises is, is an end to this kind of single-member winner-takes-all districting that so fundamentally misrepresents millions of Americans around the country. We are talking so much right now about gerrymandering and redistricting, especially as we head towards our 2021 and the, the next decade's districting that will follow the census. We have to kind of get this right. We have so many states in which the partisan breakdown of these delegations simply does not represent the actual the partisan wishes of the people of these states, and there's a better way to do this. So I want to get some clarification. Earlier you said that uh, the, the, the districts within states would typically or, or would definitely be drawn larger, um, <clears throat> I guess with the exception of Wyoming, which only has one district, but... Um, right. they'd be drawn larger. So then 
when you talk about the single uh, a single person winning a uh, uh, the, the current in the current system, when a district is drawn gerrymandered or otherwise, when a single person wins, they're only representing their party. But when you draw the district larger, <clears throat> now you're actually going to put in um, more people. Correct. You're going to put in say, to say you combine three smaller districts into one larger district, then there's multi candidates that get elected. Is that how that technically how that works? That's exactly right. So in Massachusetts, for example, because it's an easy one to break down, you currently have nine members of Congress representing nine districts. You would have three districts, and each one would have three members of Congress. And within those three members, you would be able to see Democrats, Republicans, and Independents actually have a chance to win seats. I mean, North Carolina right now has 13 members, so you could draw uh, districts of, of four, four, and five, uh, or you know, almost any way you would like. Districts of you know three, four, and five candidates. And if you use ranked choice voting, um, what you see is that suddenly everybody feels as if they are contributing to elect a member of their own choosing. In a three-district race, for example, you could elect somebody with as little as 34% of the vote. Uh, so it would be really, really easy um, for smaller groups within these districts to actually feel as if they have a voice in Congress all of a sudden. I see. So the individual voter, when they go into the voting booth and they would see um, they're not voting for just one person for their district. They're voting for multiple people and ranked choice voting on every one of them. They That's get... exactly right. Uh, okay. And all of a sudden, their vote matters. All of a sudden, every district is a swing district. All of a sudden, every voter feels as if they're going to be represented by at least one member of that delegation that actually comes close to sharing their views. And if you're a Democrat in Massachusetts right now, a Republican in New York City, uh, you probably don't feel that way about your member of Congress. Uh, let's, let's take a short break here. Uh, we've been talking with David Daly, senior fellow at Fair Vote. We'll be back after a short break. The two-party system that we've got is broken. The choices are awful. All we see is lies, cheating, deceit. You could say it about both parties. Neither one really stands for anything except acquiring and exercising power. The idea was to give the power to the people or the people who've given the power away. And that's where the system broke. Government and our political system was designed to be malleable. You know, not rigid, not ossified, not always gridlocked. Absolute power does corrupt, absolutely, and that's why the founders set the system up to avoid having concentrated power in the executive and in the national branch. The founding documents are the best, it's the best government so far that we've come up with. Um, we're just not doing it. You know, it's tribalism, basically. If, if you're not on my tribe, then you're a bad person. You could say the sky is blue, and I'm going to say, no, it's green. I think it's right out of a 1930s era playbook where if you can divide people, 
make them feel like something's being taken from them. Probably pays well for them to make sure that everybody's divided because in essence, it keeps them in office, it keeps them in power, it keeps them employed. The amount of money that's involved in politics, it is crazy. And Obama's a smart guy, but not even he could, uh, he wasn't going to do it either. And I was like, okay, that's it. If he can't do it, it's not going to happen because uh, that's when I knew that the, uh, the lobbyists and the corporate interests, uh, the outside private interests that really have a hand in making sure that our political system doesn't work, uh, I knew that they had won. And I said, okay, third party is the way to go. What I think we're trying to do here is, is to make systemic change. Yeah, we need the right people, but there's not any one person, any one charismatic personality that's going to bring about the change that we so desperately need in this country. Our biggest goals are election reform. Knock down those barriers that have been built in the ballot access game by the state governments. Fixing the dark money. Getting good health care out there. We need more women. We need more minorities. We need more occupations and backgrounds. We don't have set paradigms and beliefs. We just want to solve problems. So we're open books. We're data sensitive. We want data. And we want to solve solutions that help the most people. Let's forget about where we disagree. Let's start with where do we agree? Let facts be facts and let truth be truth and afford people the opportunity to go and find the information they need. We require term limits of all of our candidates. Now, if you have more choices and competition, uh, just like any free market enterprise, competition is going to give you a better product. Focus on innovation and really learning on a local level. Free press and educating people in an unbiased way. Protecting and, and controlling the deficit. Respect and courtesy. Honesty through transparency. Openness and transparency. Transparency. I think that's incredibly important uh, in a number of areas, but especially in finances, so that voters can connect the dots. We want to leave this place in a better condition than we left it for the next generations, pure and simple. Not just my children, all our American kids. We need to educate every single individual in this country. So every individual has tools they need to succeed in life. Ultimately, that's what we're doing this for, what we can help the American people be, not what we say they can be, but what they want to be, and we'll get our party to that point. We're supposed to help each other rise up, enlighten each other, and start by being civil and respecting other people's opinions. There's nobody left. We have to do it. There's right and there's wrong. <laughs> nobody owns it. You know, JFK, I believe, was quoted as saying something to the effect of, we don't need to look for the Republican answer or the Democratic answer, we need to look for the correct answer. And that's the types of conversations we're not having. As a people, are we doing what we should be doing? We're back. We're talking with David Daly, Senior Fellow at FairVote. So, David, let's uh, let's continue where we left off. We were talking about fair representation before. Do you have a good example you can give us? Uh, sure. Uh, North Carolina has been in the news lately um, because the, the state uh, the Supreme Court recently tossed out the entire congressional map there as an unconstitutional partisan gerrymander, and it forced the politicians and the state legislature to go ahead and redraw that map. That map had been one of the you know most gerrymandered in the country, it had produced uh, 10 Republicans and three Democrats pretty much the entire decade. Um, you had seen only one seat change sides in North Carolina, a competitive swing state over the course of this entire decade. Uh, and what the politicians can back with 
was just about an equally gerrymandered map. Now it's going to elect eight Republicans and five Democrats, but there's not a single swing district on this map. Um, so the voters are just as locked in as they were before. If you're a North Carolinian and you're frustrated with the level of representation you're receiving, you're not going to have any more ability to actually kick out a politician uh, than you did previously. All of the action is still going to be in the party primaries, which means you're still going to get the most extreme member who emerges from you know a, a low turnout summer primary. Um, and you haven't done anything to actually make our elections better and to improve the voice of voters. And that's why something like the Fair Representation Act is such a better solution to the actual problem of partisan gerrymandering and political polarization. North Carolina is going to have a new map. It's going to be a slightly less gerrymandered map. It's going to slightly better reflect the partisan breakdown of voters in North Carolina. But if you are one of those voters in North Carolina, you are not actually going to have any more choices than you did previously. The people who you send to Washington are still going to be incentivized to behave as if their base is all that matters and the primary electorate is, is king. Uh, and if we want to end that, if we want to start sending people to Washington who are willing to compromise and work together again, we have to think about the entire system. We have to think about the, the, the uh, Fair Representation Act. Yeah, it seems like uh, you know, gerrymandering is, is, is just one of those things that um, I, I personally have gone over this in my mind for years now. How do you draw the map fair? And it sounds like they had an opportunity in North Carolina to draw the map different, but it wasn't necessarily more fair. So the duopoly stepped right in and they drew themselves safe seats. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, that leads to my next, my next question. Um, because I mean, let's face it, the duopoly has really no incentive to advocate for ranked choice voting or fair representation. So, um, with that in mind, what are people or what can people do to advance the cause of fair representation? in this duopolistic uh, environment. People power is going to change this, and people power has already brought real change. If you look at the state of Maine, which is the first state that actually adopted ranked choice voting for almost all of its elections, and in 2020 expanded it to include uh, presidential elections in Maine, um, this started because individual citizens organized together and began a petition drive and got the ranked choice voting on the ballot. They did this over by going around and through mm -hmm. <laughs> all of the major political establishments in the state of Maine. This was citizens going door to door and collecting signatures in the dead of winter uh, with, you know, uh, pens that were freezing in the cold and getting the job done. Hmm. It was not enough to do this once. The political establishment in the state of Maine, uh, they actually used a secretive um, and, and controversial me mechanism 
to try to kill this after the people had adopted it. And what did the people do? They went out and they did all of this again. They collected all of the signatures again. They got it back on the ballot and they forced something called a people's veto to override their own legislature. And then that won at the polls. So sometimes if you want to get the attention of the duopoly, you have to go out and you have to beat them not once, but twice. Mm -hmm. Except now, the political establishment in Maine understands that this is the kind of election that people want. And we saw in the last session of the legislature that they actually went and expanded ranked choice voting into presidential elections. And once you go out, grab them, beat them a couple times, they begin to understand that this is the kind of election people want to have. And once politicians have run in ranked choice elections, uh, they tend to actually like it as well. It's a different, less combative, more consensus-building form of campaigning. Voters like it. Candidates like it. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, change is, 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 is hard to get, but um, important change is worth fighting for. What we see now is that the experience in Maine is being replicated around the country, that, you know, voter choice Massachusetts, uh, that organizations in, in Alaska um, are trying to use the exact same mechanism to uh, force ranked choice voting onto the ballot um, and to make it an initiative question in those states. Um, Massachusetts has already had a lot of, of luck with this. Um, what is going to happen next, I think, is that you're going to see that both the Democratic and Republican parties are going to see the wisdom in ranked choice voting and how it can help, um, especially at a time in which there are 17 or 22 candidates or the White House. Um, and you're, you're seeing in these five states in 2020 that are going to use RCV in their primaries and caucuses that the Democratic parties there understand um, the value in trying to find the candidates that actually have real consensus behind them. Um, Whenever you have 17 candidates, somebody can win with, you know, 12 or 13 percent of the vote. That is not a way to lead a party into a fall election. Yeah. Uh, and these big fields are not going away. Republicans are going to have an open, um, an open race on their side in 2024. Democrats may as well if they lose next year. Um, you're going to have two really, really big presidential fields. Um, and I think that you may see leaders of the duopoly recognize that ranked choice voting helps solve a problem that they have as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually see uh, um, <clears throat> some big advantages coming out of the, um, the example you gave in Maine there because, you know, you... Um, you have a situation where, you know, people went back to the poll or went back uh, twice to petition their, their politicians. And this, 
it, it does two things really. It, it creates a playbook for other states to follow, um, but it also uh, sets a good precedent. You know, once um, it's kind of maybe maybe lemmings is the wrong analogy to use, but you know, once one state starts to move in that direction. Um, as with a lot of different uh, issues in the past, you know, other states tend to follow, but, you know, it just takes one state to start the process and then um, it'll start to cascade from there. So that's, that's really good news. So um, let me see, we, uh, we talked a little bit about the, uh, uh, the duopoly and, and, and the roadblocks that are overcome and it sounds like it's, uh, this is, this is happening as we talk. Uh, but I've noticed that, you know, a lot of the, a lot of your answer was hinging upon, individual people taking action, you know, people going door to door, like you say, they're, they're in freezing cold weather, um, clipboard in hand and getting people to sign these, uh, sign these petitions. Uh, this really is, is not only a testimony to, um, the individual taking action, but also about the leadership. So that being the case, uh, what can fair vote do or, or what, uh, um, what can people do, uh, within, you know, to, take action themselves to find these leaders and to get in touch with um, Fair Vote and start taking action? What uh, what recourse do people have? There's an awful lot that people can do, and I think that they've uh, proven over the course of these last couple of years just how much recourse all of us have to bring about real change in our communities and states. If you go to fairvote.org, uh, which I would encourage everybody to do, we have activists get toolkits on the site that everybody can grab and download and use to go out and bring a ranked choice voting and this kind of important change to your town. Um, we have been uh, crucial in, in working with activists on the ground in, in states around the country, um, in cities around the nation, in, in lending the kind of information uh, and and help and expertise that folks need to get a successful drive launched and off the ground, and we're okay. eager to help you with that. So okay. if you go on to Fairvote, you can find all of that information. We have state chapters, as you know, in Virginia, out in Washington, um, elsewhere around the country. Uh, but we are located um, right outside of Washington, D.C. and Maryland. Uh, and there is a lot of collective wisdom there about how to bring this uh, change we so desperately need. So let us help. Wonderful. So that's uh, <clears throat> that's uh, fairvote.org, all one word. I guess it's www.fairvote.org. So go there to find out what you can do to take part in helping our democracy. We've been talking to David Daly, who is a senior fellow at Fairvote, and among other things, David uh, wrote a book on, uh, I guess, chiefly uh, some of the uh, issues with democracy these days, primarily gerrymandering. The book is entitled Rat Eft, Why Your Vote Doesn't Count. I don't want to say what uh, the actual verb is there in the beginning, but I think people can use their imagination. Um, and... Um, David, this book just came out recently, or is this uh, did this uh, has this book been out for a while? This book came out in paperback in 2017. There's actually a new one called Unrigged: um, How Americans Have Been Battling Back to Save Democracy. Uh, that will be out in March of 2020. That um, I think uh, chronicles really the more optimistic roadmap heading forward of what all of us can do. Wonderful. 
Well, David, uh, thank you for spending time with us this morning, I, <clears throat> or this evening, I should say. I know that uh, this is being the, uh, the holiday uh, season. It's uh, nice of you to take time out away from family to, uh, to come by and chat with us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for doing it. Happy New Year, everybody. Great. Well, thank you for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. This podcast is a production of the Alliance Party, a decades-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents and provide a better future for our country. This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party. If you'd like to help sponsor this podcast directly, get in touch with us through our website at theallianceparty.com. If you'd like to join the Alliance Party, visit our website at theallianceparty.com, all one word, theallianceparty.com. Drop in and see what we're all about and get involved. Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or blog, or run for office. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the Alliance Party After Dark, and on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe and be aware.